in the streets a merely mess Artists livelihoods are torn to shreds The government will spoil your hopes and dreams By offering a useless retreat and scheme There's such amazing talent, why can't you see That the government has decimated the industry And now the years of hard work have been thrown away Just get a real job. Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Just Get A Real Job, the podcast where we speak to emerging creatives and creatives from across the creative industries. I'm of course your host Jamie McKinley and uh, I'm recording this week's intro about 10 minutes before Scotland's opening Euros game kicks off against the Czech Republic. So this could backfire. When this comes out we, we could well have got beat. But, you know, I'm, I'm confident and I'm, I'm, I'm really just delighted to see my country back in a major football tournament. I'm, I'm in a very good mood and I'm enjoying a very rare day off as well. But if you're a new listener, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for tuning in to us. If you're a returning listener as well, thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for your support. As always, we have quite a big back catalogue now, so make sure to go back and check out some of our older episodes. Apologise that this episode's coming out a day late. Me and Elliot have just been so busy with work and other things and... We, we want this podcast to be the best it can be. We don't want to be rushing an episode, so we'd rather just take the extra day, you guys get the podcast episode, and it's the quality you deserve, hopefully. So I hope you understand that. But yeah, speaking to me on this week's episode of the podcast, we, it's actually a bit different this week. It's the first time we'd had more than one guest on in this sort of format. So this week on the podcast, I had the chance to sit down and speak to Chronic Insanity Theatre Company. And it's basically this amazing collective that they'd sort of been making loads of shows during lockdown. Uh, really interesting. Before lockdown as well, actually, but... It was great to sort of speak to them about what they've been up to in lockdown and yeah I got to speak to Joe and Amber from Chronic Insanity and they just told me all about what their theatre company does, what their, some of their projects are, we, we had just some general conversation and I quite enjoyed speaking to more than one person, it was a bit different so it's always good to spice things up on the podcast but anyway I'm going to keep this brief because I want to get away to watch the football but I hope you enjoy this week's episode and I'll be back at the end. Hello, Joe. Hello, Amber. This is the first time on the podcast that we'd had a sort of double interview. So thank you for coming on and thank you for this Just Get A Real Job exclusive, I guess you'd call it. No no worries. Yeah, happy to be here. Well, thank you. Well, you are both part of Chronic Insanity, like theatre. So we'll obviously be talking a bit about that today as well, but obviously both be talking about you guys as artists and things well. So just maybe first of all, it might be good if you could just sort of tell the listeners a bit about yourselves. Uh, Sure, yeah. Um, I'm Joe. I am a theatre maker, a digital producer and a creative technologist currently based in Nottingham. I've been running Chronic Insanity for about two-ish years almost. Yeah, coming up to two years, but I've been running kind of theatre companies for the past five, six years. Yes, theatre maker I think is the right word. I would kind of write and direct and perform and set design. And since we've been doing more digital theatre, I've been doing a lot of the kind of coding and editing and programming side of things as well. Yeah, I guess that's me in a nutshell. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of creative chameleons on the podcast as one of our former guests said uh, I mean we're all most people we speak to are very very you know they have lots of different skills in the creative industry so it sounds very much like you're one of those people which is great I'll let Amber tell the listeners a bit about her as well <laughs> sure hello my name's Amber I'm an actor and writer I currently live in West Sussex and I graduated from drama school last summer which obviously wasn't ideal timing but Luckily, my course continued, so I did two productions on Zoom, and then I've been doing various digital theatre pieces, and very privileged to be an associate artist with Chronic. Ended up doing 52 Souls last summer, and then was welcomed on board to be part of the company, and we've just wrapped on There's Something Among Us, which has been very interesting and exciting to work on. And yeah, currently developing my own writing, and trying to stay as creative as possible basically <laughs> yeah i think i think we're all trying very hard to, to stay creative in, in this continually weird year which i don't need to talk about too much because i think at this point we all know that <laughs> there's a pandemic and i feel like i can't say the word uh, new normal or discombobulating or anything anymore on the podcast i feel like listeners are probably fed up of, of those words <laughs> but um 
Well, thank you for the intro. I just think it's easier in the tip because there's two of you today just to sort of let you introduce yourselves a bit, just so they don't get confused. And I'll hopefully, you know, this should be fun. So anyway, wait, well, we'd like to start the podcast by asking our guests what sort of your earliest creative memories are. So I'll let you guys go one at a time. So Joe, would you like to go first and answer on that? Sure. I guess my earliest creative memories are of performing, but they're all kind of in that kind of primary school time when you're not quite sure how old you are when you look back on it like 20 <laughs> years later. I used to be um, as a uh, growing up and still now I I have a um, a this kind of speech fluency disorder like a like a there we go like a stammer sort of thing mm-hmm. but I was always given the part of like the narrator in school plays in primary school and that's where you know I mean there's that kind of kind of you know colloquial saying that if you kind of learn a script then you some for some people who have a stammer it doesn't kind of come out and express itself and I found that to be the case even at that kind of young age so I liked being able to perform and kind of not just one, but like, you know, you it felt it's like a six-year-old. I was in charge of making sure the audience absolutely knew what the story was and was abundantly clear on it. And I also remember going to Butlins as a kid and somehow ending up in the talent show telling jokes on stage in front of like way too many people for like, you know, that a six-year-old should be performing in front of. And like, and obviously everyone was really lovely. I was by far the youngest person doing it and the audience was very supportive and encouraging. So that was lovely. I guess those are my earliest performing memories. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's nice. And I appreciate you being open as well about like your star and stuff. Like, you know, I'm I'm dyslexic and I'm a writer technically. So it's, I don't yeah. think, I think it's good for listeners to hear things like that because things like that don't have to hold you back, you know, as a creative mm-hmm. or anything. You can overcome things and they can become part of you. So appreciate you talking about that as well. Amber, what about you? What are your earliest creative memories? Similar to Joe, really. Primary school shows, definitely. And I have a very vivid memory of wearing these disgustingly coloured leggings. I played Will Scarlet in Robin Hood and I was told that I had to wear earthy colours and rather than going out and buying a new pair of leggings, my mum said that was a waste of money and so she bought some dye instead and dyed a pair of white leggings brown and honestly they came out poo colour and I will never never forget that because I just remember feeling so self-conscious and embarrassed wearing these weirdly coloured leggings and also have very vivid memories of being in the nativity both at preschool and also when I was in Sunday school at church and sort of working my way up like oh maybe next year I'll be Angel Gabriel (laughs) so yeah things like that and just went from there and knew that performing was what I really wanted to do. And as like sort of teenagers and things did you both sort of continue the performance stuff like a lot did you do that a lot at school were you both like very keen in drama and things like that? Yeah but I guess not really at school like I'd get involved in school plays but from mm-hmm. like a school perspective I was always very science and maths mm-hmm. sort of focused like those were all my A-levels I didn't actually <laughs> know my worst GCSE was actually in English and now I'm doing loads of theatre for a living so that's great yeah I kept up doing performance and stuff but um so when I was about 10 I started doing magic and I think the yeah, thing that yeah. defines being a teenager for me the most is doing magic and becoming a magician sort of thing and then I started learning playing guitar when I was about 15 as well so I was sort of like maybe less of a direct theatre sort of influence so I kept auditioning and being in school plays and stuff but I was never like a lead character or anything more kind of supporting mm. roles and stuff but uh, no magic and music were the things I kind of the uh, arrows I added to my quiver as it were during my teenage years but I suppose that all you know all ties in and we'd actually had a magician on the podcast before so I saw that when I was researching that you'd done a bit of magic so I was maybe going to ask you a question about that later as well yeah yeah (laughs) yeah I suppose my question there was more just like as teenagers, not just in school, but just in general, like were you sort of both aware that you were going to pursue this as a living? I'm not really sure what age I was when I realised 100% this is what I want to do. Mm. I remember a feeling of being kind of torn and like split in half because I've got that balance of fortunately being quite academic as well as creative. And yeah, I spent a lot of my spare time doing creative things. I've always done dancing and I was a member of Chichester Festival Youth Theatre for a number of years and took part in a lot of school productions, but also was quite focused on my studies as well. And I remember thinking, my head is saying one thing, like, go do a sensible nine to five job, like that will get you good income and, you know, a solid future. But then I knew exactly where my heart was and 
you know, I've never been able to ignore that. So I think when you have a gut feeling, trust that feeling and, and go for it. It's it's going to be difficult, but, you know, you've got to do something that you love. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of what the whole podcast has been sort of born out of this idea that um, a lot of people will, you know, say just get a real job or whatever. And there's like, because it is a difficult industry, the arts and like, you know, we are all probably a little bit crazy, a little bit delusional, but, you know, we're all following our hearts and, I mean, you know, that's a good thing and not the most economically stable profession to go into. But if you love it, then I think that's enough. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think actually I've often said, because I guess I've been doing it for a couple of years now and occasionally people will ask me kind of whether this is a thing that as well as professionals, we work mm. with a lot of kind of amateur and student performers as well. Because I think there's such a massive overlap and people are really snobby about working with people, you know, you have to have this and that. I just don't think, you know, some of the best production I've ever seen have been student productions and stuff. So I think there's much more of an overlap than people give amateur performers credit for a lot of the time. But people kind of ask me about, you know, We'll get around to talking about whether people want to do it professionally or not. And I just think that if you're not starting out kind of at the bottom of the arts and working your way up, you're starting out at the bottom of some other company that presumably you don't actually care about. And before you get into a position of power or influence, it's going to be, you know, five, 10 years still, which is kind of the same if you kind of go into arts. Yeah, sure, it's more stable. And if you need that, then do that full time or part time. But don't ever think that you're going to you know, jump straight into a job where you have the income you need and you can get a mortgage and you get, you know, a company car and you're not making concessions on a, you know, day by day, week by week basis. You're going to be doing that whenever, especially at the moment, you're going to be doing that wherever you start out. So my decision was always to start out doing something that I loved rather than something that I might love eventually. Yeah, absolutely. I think most of our listeners can probably relate to that a lot as well. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, sort of something as well we ask, which I'm interested, but we sort of on the podcast is just like, how has where you're both from had an influence on you as a creative? So where, for, for, for so first of all, where are you both from? So I live in a very sleepy village called Storrington, which is about half an hour from Chichester or 40 minutes from Brighton and okay. I've lived here my whole life never moved house apart from when I moved to London for drama school and I'd say it's influenced my creativity in terms of my connections to my local youth theatre like I, I do owe a lot to just Festival youth theatre and the opportunities that that gave me I've performed in the Minerva Theatre and on the festival stage which is pretty cool to say I did that as a young person <laughs> like a lot of actors aspire to perform on those stages so I feel quite honoured to have experienced that and the people that I met and the confidence it gave me to, to pursue what I'm doing now and also it's a very family-centric village and it will always be my home no matter where I end up I know that you know that is where my heart is and I'm surrounded by a lot of greenery which has been amazing during the pandemic yeah i can imagine to get out and and take in fresh air because london is a very fast-paced environment and i think it can be quite draining and difficult at times to be there so yeah, I will always feel like this is home. Brilliant. No, no, absolutely. Like, I think the, the reason, one of my favourite questions is because I just love when people talk on the podcast about where they're from and how their sort of hometown or where they grew up has had an influence on them as a creative. But Joe, are you from Nottingham then? Or is that just where you're based just now? That's where I'm based at the moment. Originally, I'm yeah. from kind of like, I think we moved there when I was about two, but basically for as long as I can remember, I lived in Walthamstow in northeast London. And I think, and then I moved away at 18 for university, essentially. But yeah, no, I think growing up in London, like someone who was, you know, I was into a lot of stuff and would be one of those kids that would have hobbies and interests change every so often on a dime. And suddenly you had to find out where to, you know, and it was always useful being able to like, London's full of uh, museums and galleries. And then you'd go to Covent Garden and it'd be full of street performers. Like, I think what was really helpful was I could see that there was lots of stuff on your doorstep. You know, there are still huge swathes of London. I've never visited or seen the cool stuff in just because it's so big. And by the time I was about what, 13, 14 and venturing into London by myself or with mates to go do stuff, we were just kind of hanging out in the same places all the time. Yeah, I, I, I think there's just, yeah, a, a lot there to take in. And also with things like the museums and stuff, a lot of it's free and easy and open to actually get into and have a look around so I think that was super useful growing up it just kind of I don't know it really instilled in me the idea of like there's loads of cool stuff and you don't have to be limited you know the science museum is next to the Victoria and Albert Museum then the Natural History <laughs> Museum they're all kind of one big group of museums yeah, yeah. and you can spend a day going in all three of them it, it, I guess maybe it didn't quite separate stuff out I can imagine if you grew up somewhere kind of sleepier or more quiet your understanding of a lot of these sorts of industries or ideas comes from what other people are saying or comes from like very fleeting day trips here and there. And I think having the idea that like, if I'm bored, I can just go and do this was something that I really benefited from. And I guess maybe has influenced kind of how we could try and run Chronic Insanity to make it kind of accessible 
to people mm. and have cool stuff always available and not like artificially limited because there's so much legitimate limiting in the world that it feels like when you can make stuff more open it'll be a shame to not do that i absolutely love that yeah accessibility is something i try and talk about on the podcast as well and i mean i'm from a pretty small town in fife where i grew up and it's like you know it was like that sense of what you're saying there wasn't a lot of opportunities creatively there wasn't it was loads of stuff going on like i'm very much influenced from where i grew up but you know having that accessibility it's like it's difficult because you have to afford to pay for a train to go for example in my case go to somewhere like edinburgh or glasgow you know one of the bigger cities in scotland where there's more opportunities and things and it's like you don't always see that creative things go whereas i suppose for you joe growing up in london you maybe you just feel like you can just do it because you see it around you. Whereas like for me, I didn't really see it. It was, it felt like something very far away. And even now, like as a, as an adult trying to sort of forge a career in this industry, like it sometimes does feel even still that it's like this thing that's far away and unattainable. So I don't know if you've ever felt that Amber in a small village or anything. Yeah, I do agree with you. Like it, it can seem very far away, but at the same time, I do think the industry is, is shifting and changing mm. and regional theatres are doing really well. And things are changing in terms of, touring and that's making things more accessible and getting young people involved in the arts is a big thing for a lot of companies and a lot of actual venues now absolutely um, which is so important for the future of the arts and working with elderly people that have got dementia and you know the, the benefits they can get from exploring the arts is amazing so I think that there is much more of an awareness and it isn't as London-based as it used to be. Yeah, I mean, you can be anywhere in the world and, <laughs> and connect with people now, which is, I guess, is one of the most amazing things that has come out of the pandemic. And I've been able to connect with some people that I probably never would have even met before. So that's really cool. No, absolutely. And I mean, we'll, well, I'm sure we'll sort of talk about this more when we start talking about chronic insanity shortly, because I, I can see from like just reading about it and things that you have really took to that online thing in lockdown and really used that platform, which is great and quite a lot of our guests have and like and as you say like there is an, an amazing opportunity of like being able to connect like for me doing this podcast in lockdown stuff like i've getting a chance to you know speak to you guys speak to like people from across the world really which is amazing you know just say like you know if i did this in real life i would you know we'd have to get trained somewhere it'd be like really expensive do you know what i mean so that it does give you that opportunity to like have these conversations which is great and i do think things are becoming and i hope it continues but you know at this idea of accessibility and things so Definitely. Well, before we move on to sort of talk about chronic insanity stuff, I like to another question we had to ask, which is a really fun one is like, do you have a favorite word or phrase from where you're both from? So whichever one wants to go first, I don't know. I actually had to ask my family about this because there were a few <laughs> ideas I had. And then my sister reminded me this morning of cheesy bug, um, <laughs> which is our word for woodlouse. And I was listening to the radio, this was a few months ago now, and they said there's something like over a hundred names for a woodlouse, but I think I might be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong. Cheesy bug is specific to the South or the Sussex even. And people are always like, why do you call them cheesy bugs? And I genuinely don't know. It's just how I was brought up. And I can't really call them anything else. <laughs> I've never heard that one, to be fair. I'm, I don't okay. even know. I'm trying to think if we have a name for it in Scotland, but I honestly can't think of any. But I did read that article <laughs> you're talking about as well. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> what um, do you What do you call a woodlice, Joe? Do I just call them, no, just, I just call them uh, woodlice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although, my, oh, like, yeah, obviously people call them all sorts of things all over the place. <laughs> I think, I don't really know if there are any particular phrases from, like, where I grew up. I know that something we used to say a lot in my house was, um, and this is the thing I never knew was a weird thing until then we started going, you know, I started talking to other people about it. If people have, like, like a spare downstairs room, but it's not, like, a dining room per se, are there particular names that? Because we always used to call ours the funny room. I think because there was a poster on the wall from, like, a music festival or something, which had, like, this weird kind of, dude playing a saxophone on it and for some reason i thought it was funny and then as i know a petulant four-year-old suddenly was like this room is the funny room now and just everyone just went with it and that's the name of that room even though that post is long gone and that room now has other functions for people there's like an office or something it's i think always to be known as the funny room yeah, yeah. no definitely and if it, there's like loads of uh, things like that that i just have loads of different meetings like tv remote somebody was talking about in the podcast mm -hmm. they like what they call that so oh, there you go there's a there's a spontaneous question what do you both call a tv remote <laughs> i mean i switch between remote or controller yeah um, standard or, yeah no yeah i know some people would go like oh pass the doobry yeah i mean that's got no connection to what it actually is so. no absolutely <laughs> i think i think i might just call it the or no it's either like just like the remote or i'll point to it 
or I'll just call it like the thing in me or something. Like yeah. again, not a word that relates to actually what it is. No. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a very random question. But, you know, you all, they always say as an interview, ask someone a question they've never been asked before. So you know, this like, <laughs> there you go, tick in that box. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, sorry, we can now talk about a bit more about chronic insanity for you. Maybe start, Joe. You can tell us a bit about chronic insanity, how it started, and then we can maybe sort of talk about some of the projects that you guys have been working on. Yeah, sure. So we started the company in, I think, May 2019. Me and our co-artistic director, Nat, were, have been working on shows together for about the past two, three years. And we were starting to get to a point where we were in that kind of, like I kind of talked about that murky area between being a student and an amateur and being a professional and kind of wanting to traverse that and start mm. doing work professionally. And because we'd made quite a lot of work over that period of time, we realised that we really, we wanted to make very specific work and work that maybe, and at a rate, like we wanted to make more work and we wanted to make more challenging and more difficult work and more engaging work. And we just didn't really find the opportunities to do that where we were. And so we decided we were just going to make them. Or we were just going to like figure it out and find space anywhere, whether it's a theatre or whether it's like a tree in a park or a room <laughs> above a pub or something. We're just going to go and just be like, hey, we do theatre. We want to do theatre here. Can we do it? And then people said yes for stuff. And so we started in September 2019. And we said, well, we're going to do 12 shows in 12 months as like a challenge to be like, let's really kind of, you know, if we're going to do it, let's go all in and let's make a show each month. And we started and then the pandemic hit. By that point, I think we'd done six shows in five months. So we were one ahead. So we took April off, as it were, and we decided, should we keep going? Can we do this? And I'm currently finishing off a PhD looking at mixed reality <laughs> technologies. So I was kind of already oh, wow. in this idea of um, your virtual augmented reality, how to use theatre techniques in digital performance spaces. So I'd already been thinking about digital theatre for a couple of years. It wasn't like we were starting afresh, at least for us personally. So we were like, let's keep going and let's see what we had. And we had a script that I'd written a year and a half ago, which actually took place online. And we've been struggling to find a way of performing it in the real world. So we were like, well, let's start with this one. And we did. And then we kept going and we managed to do 12 shows in 12 months by August that year. And then we took autumn off and we did some consulting for some other companies who had kind of noticed that we were doing cool digital theatre stuff. And then this January of 2021, we started doing 12 shows in 12 months again. And we're currently five shows down in four months. So one ahead wow. again, which is, it was very useful last year. So we thought we'd keep doing it. <laughs> so you're almost like ahead of the game before COVID. You were like, you know, you were looking at the digital stuff before, like it was sort of forced to, which I mean, pretty handy it turns out, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it just made sense. It just felt like whenever there's a major technical revolution, it always gets used for entertainment. And obviously for things like streaming, whether that's TV and film, whether that's music, obviously the internet had taken off massively and been a huge help for loads of people to access stuff. And it just wasn't really being used for theatre. And that felt like a, a missed opportunity, particularly when it had so many benefits. And then COVID hit and everyone had to use it. And I think it became apparent to everybody all of the benefits that doing theatre online could have. Yeah, no, I think definitely. And I think as we were sort of touched on earlier like this whole idea of like theater almost not being as accessible as it maybe should be and things uh, do you think i think going forward now like there's a lot of people, people i've been speaking to in the industry feel that like you know this is going to be the future of, of theater like there will always be some sort of digital element perhaps to a lot of shows now even if it's a i mean i know that they did like the, they used to screen some cinema shows from like the big shows but like I feel like a lot of theatre companies maybe sort of film their process as well, put that online, stuff like that, and, you know, just making it a lot more digital. I don't know if you'd had any experience of that before this pandemic, Amber. Yeah, I mean, I think there has definitely been a shift and we could have all very easily just given up and said, ah, there's nothing we can do. And I think for me, it's, it's really challenged my perceptions of theatre and what categorises a piece as theatre. Mm. And doing productions on Zoom, I think you either have to embrace Zoom or it kind of becomes a bit clunky if you if you just ignore that you're using that medium because it's so different. Theatre is about being reactionary both with other performers but also with the audience. But I think particularly with Chronic, I think what's so exciting is you're putting the audience at the heart of what you're doing because a lot of our pieces have become interactive and yeah. it, it puts the audience in control which I think is really important because audiences are becoming more demanding as more things are becoming available. And like, for example, Black Mirror, that episode where you got to select where the story went. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it exciting when you can really connect with your audience and put them in the driving seat. And there's always something more you can do. It's 
very exciting to be part of a company that are pushing those boundaries. No, it's brilliant. Yeah, that is, that's a really exciting time. And Joe, I suppose it's obviously starting a bit before COVID. Like I know you've been interested in the digital stuff for a while, but did you sort of get, did you ever have anyone ask, sort of asking you like, can you give me as like some advice on how to do this since you were sort of ahead of the game? Did you get did you like carry on? Like, did it sort of hit the ground running when pandemic started? Did you find you had a bigger audience because of the pandemic and things? I think pre-pandemic, no one knew who we were. So I don't know one no one knew to ask us or if they did, they were there were other people that knew way more than us and still do. And actually when the pandemic started, we were talking to them to begin with, because I knew how to do it. I knew I knew how to direct a show. I knew how online worked, but I didn't know how to stream things. I didn't know how to, to like edit video out of doing, you know, Windows Movie Maker or iMovie projects as a teenager. Like I didn't know what software was best. I didn't know if there was equipment I needed to buy and what that was. So yeah, well, we did the first month. I said we didn't do anything. What we did was we, you know, we planned and we researched and we had conversations with people and we tried to figure out if moving forwards we could do it properly and what state other people were doing things at. Now people come and talk to us, which is lovely because we have learned a lot by doing, you know, a show a month for the past year and a half. So we know loads of stuff. If anyone's listening and wants to know more, email us, DM us, talk to us. I'm very happy. We've got loads of information and we're very happy to talk to anyone to help more people to make more accessible, you know, online theatre stuff. But uh, yeah, not not to begin with, no. We were kind of just doing our own thing in Nottingham. I think we, we reached further audiences though with digital stuff to answer the second half of your question. We ended up working with a load of people based in kind of like uh, New York and Pittsburgh, kind of um, the other side of the Atlantic for a couple of shows. And then we suddenly had, you know, an American audience and Canadian audience for stuff we were making last summer. And I think that really hit home. You know, we'd started the company less than a year before and now we were making work that was being seen internationally and appreciated. So it was that thing of like, wow, this really, you know, if we'd been... If, if the internet didn't exist and this was just like the traditional classic theatre world, this would take years, if not tens of years, to get to a point where we'd be touring and having American audiences see stuff we were doing. And now it was happening within a year. And there's no reason that that was anything particularly different or special that we did. I think we were just, we did a call out. Some American people saw it and auditioned and then they spread the word amongst their own networks and stuff. So um, I think that's one of the things that really helps with digital stuff. It's not just accessibility in like from a you know, does it have captions? Does it have BSL interpretation aspect? It's accessibility in every form. It's geographic and that geographic is international as well. People all over the world can see something you've made in your bedroom by yourself in some instances, and (laughs) it can be appreciated by a much wider audience. Absolutely. Wow. That's that's amazing as well about the American stuff. I suppose as well, it's just like this idea of you don't have to go to one place to just see something anymore. You can just, you could, as you say, I can sit in my bedroom in Edinburgh. Someone can sit in their bedroom in New York and and be part of something and and interact, which I suppose is an amazing thing. And it's like the way of the world now, I guess. But do you. It might continue as well. There's people wanting to just sit on their sofa and watch something that was performed at the national because maybe they can't afford to get there or whatever their reasoning and you know it does make it very enjoyable when you can just immerse yourself in your own home and yeah absolutely no definitely i I suppose pricing is a problem as well i think you as you mentioned like that that has always been a problem i think with all art there's always like sort of an elitist element to art where like the top shows higher up and things are very expensive people can't afford them so like it is always good to have grassroots movements as well like chronic insanity yeah absolutely and it's not even the shows themselves although obviously yes theater is very expensive to purchase Mm. tickets for but it's everything else. It's travel. It's yeah. babysitters. It's, <laughs> is it at half seven? Do you eat out? And then if you're eating out, you're eating out in the place where the theatre is. So it's going to be twice as expensive to buy food as anywhere else is. And yeah, th- those costs really, really rack up. I'm not surprised that more people, you know, when NT Life started doing whatever it was doing, what was that 10 years ago now or something roughly? That I saw shows, you know, I got to see um, the uh, production of Yerma at the Young Vic with Billy Piper in it. Yeah, which is great. Great play, great performance. I would have never been able to see that because I was based in Nottingham at the time and I didn't know what Yerma was. Actually, at the time, I don't even know if I really knew what the young Vic was, to be perfectly honest. I knew who Billy Bible was through Doctor Who. That was about it. Mm. So we went to see the show and it was brilliant, but there's no way I would have paid even like 20 quid to go and see a ticket of that in person because I would have also had to pay 40 to get the train down to London and back. I'm fortunate that I still have family so I can stay somewhere, but if I didn't, I'd have to either make that very stretchy journey hoping I get the last train back or find some a, a mate to crash with and that would be uncomfortable. It's not money, but it's still, you know, something I have to manage and anticipate and it becomes a massive thing but NT Live is also selective your show has to be able to appeal to basically everyone in the country for them to be able to 
justify filming it. So I think more people doing their own DIY filming stuff. And also particularly now, because basically if you've got a smartphone from the last five years, you've got a really good camera that um, as long as you light it and you get, you know, you can buy a good microphone for like 50 quid. It's uh, that barrier to entry to make a high quality thing, which some people still really care about, you know, in its kind of fidelity and its resolution, all of that sort of thing is really accessible to people more so than it's ever been. And I think now actually is a really nice time for people to just like, yeah, let's see what we can make with this. And because there will be people that want to watch it. And well, that's been proved by the past year. So no, it's it's like punk, you know, punk started from the DIY sort of approach. So it's like it's great to see. I, I actually think it's a really exciting time to be a creative. As stressful as it is, like it is difficult, and like there are less opportunities, like in terms of jobs and things. I'm more from a, a film and TV background than theatre, but like you know, it's it's still an exciting time to see how things are changing. And I, actually, one of the most fun conversations I've been having on the podcast is with people from theatre because that seems to be where there's been the most disruption as well because they've not been able to work for a year so I was interested to see how they'd like they're going to emerge from the bunker I suppose you could call it and, and sort of see where they're at and see what's been happening and it's not like you guys have not been doing anything either that, that's what's more exciting you, you'd stayed active which is really inspiring and amazing to see cheers thanks Yeah, it's always really because it's always really weird to hear people say that because it's just mm. I don't know it's just we've been running the company very much within what my nature is I don't think we've ever had to make a difficult decision it's always been a no-brainer where I think maybe I'm just very stubborn and if someone says I can't do a thing and I don't believe them, I'll try and find a way to do it. So if the world is like, oh, we've shut down, theatre doesn't exist anymore for the year. I'm like, no, it, of course it can. Let's, <laughs> how can we still do stuff? We can still tell stories. They can still feel live and important yeah. in that sort of immediate sense. They can still be worthy. Maybe there are stories particularly that we can tell now we couldn't before, you know. You can tell a story over the internet about email or WhatsApp. We've done both of those things and they've gone really well. But if you try to tell that on stage, it would have been incredibly boring to watch it just be a big projection of <laughs> scrolling through inboxes and then someone puffs, you know that it doesn't work so actually if anything it, it hasn't reduced there it, it's it's broadened it. we can now tell way more stories that are relevant to younger audiences people that have only ever grown up with the internet and therefore have a lot of their life based in online interactions whose stories and lives weren't being catered for by in-person productions because they'd either be like poorly thought out or just completely ignored and I think now there are more native interesting ways of telling those stories and there's almost a sense of uh, digital liveness that comes with that you know if you tell a story over whatsapp which is a story about people in a whatsapp group that's live in the same way that telling a story about people meeting in a cafe and it is done in a fake cafe on a stage it's the same sort of thing if anything it's more live you know you're doing it in the same app rather than in a reconstructed app Absolutely. No, that, I love that. That's great. Well, so I, I actually just wanted another question was just, so Amber, how, how did you get involved in Chronic Insanity? How did that all come about? So I'm actually trying to rack my brains in terms <laughs> of going all the way back to the beginning. I think I must have just seen a call out on Twitter, most probably. And I auditioned, I can't even remember what I auditioned for, but I remember the self-tapes that I did. They were two brilliant scripts, Lungs by Duncan McMillan and Crave by Sarah Kane and I remember thinking oh my goodness this is amazing material to have the opportunity to self-tape with and I just gave it a go and I was like do you know what I I don't really know much about this company but what they do sounds really exciting and I'm gonna give it my best shot and I didn't get that particular project but I stayed in communication with Joe and Nat and then they contacted me about 52 Souls and I sent in the self-tape and then I was part of 52 Souls, which was really cool to be to be part of that and to be one of 52 people all talking about the same subject, but in a very interactive, immersive experience for the audience. And then following that, I can't remember which way around it was, but Joe got in contact with me and said, we're thinking of expanding the company and possibly taking you on board as an associate artist, along with various other creatives too. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, diving at the deep end, see what happens. And I've had the opportunity to work on some really interesting projects. And it's definitely challenged me as a creative and inspired me as well, just how much we have been able to do and how accessible it's been. And sort of following on from what Joe was saying in terms of we are so consumed now by the digital world, whether that be social media or emailing all the time. Everything is so constant at such a fast pace. And I think to match that, reflect that in the work that we're producing is is really important because that's the reality of the world that we're living in right now and even more so during the last year. So, yeah, I'm just very (laughs) grateful, I suppose, for, for being part of the company. No, it's amazing. 
Hello, it's Jamie and Elliot here. I hope you're enjoying today's episode of Just Get A Real Job. I just wanted to remind you guys that if you're enjoying the podcast, word of mouth is the best way for us to grow. So please, if you can, share us on social media, tell your friends and family to listen. You can also support us by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate your help. So anything you can do to help us grow this project is very much appreciated. We do appreciate your support as always. And if you would like to contribute or donate to our podcast, we also have a Patreon page where you could donate as little as much much as you wish you can access this by going to www.patreon.com slash just get a real job so thank you very much again for all your support and you can also find a link to the patreon page in the show notes but anyway now back to today's show well, I suppose my next question for you both is sort of like, where do you see the company going next? And like, now things are slowly opening back up. Do you think you're going to start doing some in-person things again? Are you going to keep the digital stuff as well? You sort of do a mix and match? Yeah, I, uh, we've uh, we've already got some in-person shows booked for the summer. We're doing a uh, Brian Fringe and we're doing um, Offbeat Festival, uh, which is run out of the Oxford Playhouse and the Old Fire Station. Yeah. And then moving forwards, we're continuing to do kind of like, we've got some digital ideas, we've got some in-person ideas, and we've got some kind of hybrid ideas that hopefully will appeal to both an in-person and a digital audience at the same time. We want to see whether that's, and that's not just like doing a theatre show and then streaming it, but it's like, are there two equivalent side-by-side experiences that can take place live at the same time where you can always pit like a digital audience versus the in-person audience for something? Is there a way that you can actually have that? Because then it's present and it's live. The digital audience is live if they can affect what happens to the in-person audience and vice versa. So I think, yeah, there are we've, we've got some ideas churning around and we're trying to come up with exactly what we're going to do for this year and future years as well. We're always trying to think ahead and, you know, we've been ambitious. 12 years in 12 months is ambitious for anybody. Yeah. And we did that and we were like, well, what's the next lot going to be? So we kind of worked with Amber and a load of, you know, we've got 15 to 20 associate artists that we work with and support and put funding bids in to try and get money so we can pay people. I think this year so far, we've been able to pay everyone a fair wage for everything that they've done for us, which is phenomenal because beforehand it was either like, work with us for two hours and we'll give you 25 quid, but we can't work with you anymore because we can't afford it. So I think all we were kind of, you know, letting, getting people to volunteer for certain projects. And this year we've actually got money that we can walk it's like a you know and per ace bid mm. basis but we can get some funding in to pay people to you know spend some more time on some shows and to develop some stuff further and to commission people to write stuff for us which has been really lovely to be able to support more kind of artists both oh, in, the, in the east midlands and also on a national and occasionally international scale no that's great well i think what you guys are doing at you know chronic insanity is great and like obviously we'll link in the show notes like you know stuff people can go and find out more about you hopefully see your shows i'm, I'm definitely gonna try and come along and watch one of your shows now after speaking to you guys so lovely i have you know a look a look at what's on i've got a few like sort of fun questions i like to ask all my guests like which i enjoy kind of look i say quick i always say quick fire but when i say that people sort of go oh, it doesn't have to be like you know rapid but i suppose my first one is who are your like biggest impact influences creatively like who are the people you like have inspired your work and who you look up to just whatever like there's no order just whichever one wants to go first that's quite an overwhelming question because I know I can see you both thinking so many people <laughs> yeah yeah I actually had to answer this question for an application the other day so mm. it's kind of fresh in my head but someone who has influenced me in terms of a performer and a writer is Sarah Milton who I've known for a number of years and I've seen both her productions live and just her storytelling is what has really inspired me because I think at the end of the day that is what we're doing we're telling stories and that is such a natural and human thing to want to do and to be part of and I think that has always been in the back of my head am I telling a story you know who who is this story relevant to why am I telling this story and I think if you can answer those questions then you're doing your job very well yeah it's just really exciting to to see how audiences connect with with different things that's brilliant thank you well and joe what about yourself i guess i've got so like the people that i feel like are influencing me and are the most always kind of vary and i forget half of them and remember the other half but um from a theater perspective i'm always a big fan of the playwright philip ridley i love the worlds that he creates um whether they're the kind of more recent monologue works that he's done or whether they're his you know, occasionally very vast, <laughs> detailed worlds of like things. I always like that. There's that juxtaposition of like the really ordinary everyday and the completely fantasy, magical, bizarre, and uh, dystopian, and how easily everything fits together. I think that kind of 
clash and jar between those worlds, I think is super interesting. I really like the Chapman brothers, a pair of artists who are kind of part of that kind of young British artists movement in the 90s, who do a lot of work that kind of really smashes the grotesque and the innocent or the kind of the good and the evil together in a world that really makes you kind of consider both and the kind of yin and yang nature of how you can't have one without the other sort of thing. And then I guess Jimi Hendrix from like a musical <laughs> perspective, but also yeah. particularly in a way that no one dislikes him. If you're like, you know, your punk bands like the way that Hendrix would like attack a guitar and perform with emotion and with like aggression. And then people that are, you know, the classical, neoclassical guitarists and musicians love how intricate and the way that that was done. I think that kind of, that's really inspiring, the idea of being able to appeal to those kind of more conservative audience that are super into high quality technical ability and those more kind of liberal alternative audiences who are like, no, we don't care if you're playing poorly as long as you're playing with, with passion and energy finding that kind of midpoint to be able to be like massively appealing while also being kind of uniquely yourself and not just copying other people, I think is really inspiring as well. That's great. I like it when people give like very honest personal answers to these questions as well. And it's sometimes people I might not have heard of as well. So it's great. I also know how difficult these questions are because I recently had to be a guest on my own podcast and I was like, oh, this is a... <laughs> it's actually not as easy as it, you know, as it made it seem for the last six months. So yeah, another one of my questions is, and uh, well, usually this is a sort of question I would ask to performers and actors, but I'm going to change this question up slightly because I know not all like, you know, Joe, I don't think you act, do you? You're more like involved in the writing. Um, I do act Sometimes. occasionally. Oh, yeah, okay. occasionally. Yeah. It's, it's, it's normally if we can't afford to hire someone else, okay. I'll jump in. But. All right, well, the, the question works then. That's fine. Yeah. I can keep it in its original form. I didn't want to just assume anyone. No, that's fine. And because everyone's so you know multifacetedly creative as well, sometimes yeah. roles are just, you know, whatever. But yeah, this, so this guy, if you could play or write any character from history, like write their story or play them in something, what who would that be? Any Anyone from history, dead or alive? I have an idea, but they're not necessarily... A real person. I'll let you have that's, it. Okay. I'll let you have um, it. I've been playing around with an idea for an adaptation of the um, the Samson story from the Bible recently. I'm not personally religious at all, but I think that the story of here is a person, they are the strongest person in the world. We want to take them down somehow, but we can't because they're just like physically a much better human being than we are. Like they're strong, but not evil. They kind of, they embody all of these positive attitudes for the new audience. And also they're like, you know, they're strong, they're a man's man. They're all of these like, um, however toxic, all of these traditional ideas of masculinity as well as being kind and generous. So how do we tackle this person? I think that idea of like, yeah, getting, you know, destroying them and then that character kind of turning back and taking revenge in the way that they obviously always would have done and it's ridiculous that people didn't consider that before they tried to take them down i think is really interesting and has a lot of modern day parallels with a lot of more kind of social justice movements that we see a lot of in the kind of figureheads that get made of those sorts of movements i think have very kind of samson-like qualities where they brush off a load of stuff because they're just from different worlds they've grown up with in completely different worlds to the you know the 16 70 year olds who are funding all of the attack campaigns against them who just don't actually attack them in ways that feel like they matter at all whenever someone insults Greta Thunberg and she changes her Twitter bio to be that it shows it's just like you're not quite doing the damage that you think you're doing and I think it's really there's an interesting parallel to be drawn with that story. That sounds really good, actually. I hope hopefully you do write that then. Fingers crossed, yeah. <laughs> Amber, have you had time to think of an answer? Well, I am still struggling, but the story, I suppose, that, that stuck in my head was when I watched Judy, about Judy Garland. Mm. And I just think, maybe not specifically her story, but you never know what is going on behind closed doors. And I think that is kind of, intriguing as a storyteller but also as an audience member getting to that final layer what is actually yeah. going on behind someone what makes someone tick and what makes us behave in the way that we do I guess is the kind of stories that intrigue me yeah and I just remember sort of sitting there and going oh my goodness of course she experienced all those things because she was propelled into stardom at such a young age. And I think in society today, like a lot of young people are finding that with YouTubers or social media influencers being overwhelmed with the response that they're getting from other people. And, you know, it is really a case of being in the right place at the right time. And suddenly you could go from 100 followers to 100,000. You know, it's crazy what is possible nowadays. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I haven't seen the Judy film, but I, I have heard it's good and it is on my list to eventually watch. Sorry it's so late. Miss Carl. Oh, please. I'm Judy. I'm very sorry, but your suite has been released. What do you mean, released? 
Where exactly has it gone? <laughs> Your account was in arrears. Clang, clang, clang with the trolley. Mama, please don't go to sleep now. No, 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 leave the other one. Zing, zing, zing. The kids need a home, Judy. I know what kids need. They need their mother. Um, well, another question, I, I'm sort of starting to wrap things up shortly, but um, another question for you both is, which I think is really, a really important one for the listeners to hear is, because obviously in the, this industry it can be hard, but how do you both personally deal with knockbacks and failure and rejection? I mean, it varies. Some days mm. I can just brush it off and think, okay, you know, you take it on the chin and you move on. And other days it, it can really get to you and you think, goodness, why am I putting myself through this? Why am I doing it? But then you're reminded by yourself or the people that surround you that this is what you want to do and this is your passion and you just have to keep going and, and chipping away at it and know that if you're not in the position that you want to be right now, that is okay. And it's it's a lifetime career. Yeah. And it's a, it's also a lifestyle choice. It's not even necessarily a career. It's an all-encompassing, consuming industry. And you have to embrace that and just go, I'm going to do this. And some people won't like what I do, or I might not fit the role, or I might not be correct at that point in time. But you will get there. You just have to keep going and believe in yourself because otherwise no one else will <laughs> yeah no it's, it's great what about you joe i completely agree that it, it varies on a day-by-day basis i had um quite a large rejection recently that was really difficult to do mm. surprisingly difficult because normally like i find a way to bounce back or carry on i think mainly it's because we apply for a huge amount of stuff almost any yeah. call out we see that we're relevant for we try and write an application for and get in which means that if we don't get one it's all right because there's like five or six others on the horizon that we haven't heard back from yet and then we just keep repeating that so there's never a point where we're like now we're out of opportunities i also think we're fortunate that we've we've been successful making our own opportunities so we have that encouragement of, and that reinforcement that that is a thing that we are able to do which I know yeah. is really, really fortunate and lucky for us. But that is a thing that everyone is able to do. But then you have to get creative and then you have to make compromises. And it's always about that sort of idea of figuring out what you're comfortable compromising with and what you're comfortable trying again with. Yeah, it can be tricky, but it's I, I think what Amber said as well about right place at the right time is a massive thing. There are there are too few opportunities for people, but I don't know how you'd make any more opportunities other than just pumping money into organizations and making organizations properly make shows that audience, different audiences want to watch so that more audiences come. And maybe it's not the same audience every show, but it's different audiences read shows and therefore a greater audience that will then engage in the arts more widely. And then you can fund and create more work and employ more people. But that's a massive systemic change. And I don't see that happening soon, if maybe ever, unfortunately, unless loads of people really you know, pull the fingers out and aim towards making that. So yeah, so I guess it becomes a numbers thing, you know, being successful is always about luck and it's always being in the right place at the right time and if you're not in the right place at the right time you might miss out on the thing obviously you can't always be there you know being able to be in the right place at the right time is a massively privileged position in and of itself to know what the right place is and to be available at the right time but like Amma says yeah it's a lifetime thing you have to kind of keep going and go off the back of beach success and try and make the most of things and if it feels like you just keep getting rejected that's really harsh it's like it's it's a really shit feeling because it just really makes you feel like you're not wanted but i think it's always really important to remember that the industry is just individual people it's like an ant colony and it feels like it exists as one big lump where if you've been bitten by five or six ants all the ants are going to hate you but they don't know each other they're not that connected and (laughs) just because you know if if there are a thousand opportunities you've tried out for even like a hundred of them and haven't got any of them that doesn't mean that those other 900 aren't going to really want you i know it's difficult because human brains aren't very good at statistics and probability and working that out but it just doesn't necessarily actually mean anything maybe there are places that you don't know to look because they're also like you starting out you know we were a small theatre company. We were fortunate that we followed the right people on Twitter that when we did a call out, people like Amber saw it and applied and we've been able to work together. But there are always going to be other companies like us. We're not by ourselves. There's loads of small companies that want to work with all sorts of people, companies made up of people who have also been felt shunned and not wanted in the industry. And if those people group together and make work you know, by themselves to the point at which they're making work that is unignorable, then those companies are going to be like unstoppable when it comes to the changing of the guard in the theatre eventually will conclude more and more of those people until it's those people running everything because those are the most tenacious and ambitious and creative people in the industry and they'll win out eventually so those are both great answers i've actually like oh i needed to hear that as well so thank you you. something i love about this podcast is we can have 
these really open conversations because I think a lot of people that have listened and, and do listen are also like in the same position where they are going to be getting rejected from things. They maybe have down days. I mean, even me myself, like I had a big rejection on Friday as well. And like, it hit me quite hard. And usually I'm also quite good at being like, it's fine. I'll move on to the next one. But sometimes it's okay to also just be like, nah, you know what? I really wanted that one. And I'm going to let myself feel a bit, you know, shit about it for a few days, but I'll, you know, it's just the way it is. So I appreciate you both like sort of answering that really honestly as well, because I think it's good for people to, to know they're not alone. So thanks for those answers. Just get a real well, my next question is usually a little bit more enjoyable um, or a bit more funny, but like we sort of ask everyone that comes on what the sort of worst real job they'd ever had to work to support their art or anything is, um, just to make people feel better because we all have to work jobs we don't like. So do you two have any jobs that stand out? I think it's a really in- interesting question in itself because, I mean, there have been times that I've done jobs that I've not necessarily 100% enjoyed but I've never disliked a job mm. as such but I guess my most challenging job was working at Chelsea Football Club um, <laughs> when I was studying at drama school I did it part-time at the weekends um, selling raffle tickets for their half-time raffle and honestly some people were so rude yeah. um, I would get people just ignoring me walking straight past me sort of because it is a very active role you have to you know go up to people and be like hey guys you're interested in the half-time raffle and um I mean I don't know anything about football which was the most hilarious thing because some people would try and strike up a conversation with me and I'd be like um I've heard great things about Higuain (laughs) um so yeah I just you just have to sort of get on with it and go this is funding going to an audition or going to see a piece of theatre and you know you never know who you might meet I think that's the exciting thing with these crazy part-time jobs that we do it, it might lead to something you never know <laughs> <laughs> absolutely Definitely. yeah so mine is um I, I worked as a cleaner at the University of Nottingham for 18 months I finished my undergrad I moved to Nottingham and then for six months I was unemployed and was doing like you know job center courses and free work at the job center which actually was a bit sketchy and then i got a job as a cleaner at the university and i worked in the kind of like um science and technology departments engineering pharmacy that sort of thing cleaning up labs and offices and stuff for 18 months and it was like a morning shift so i do six till nine in the morning and at the time it seemed all right like it was you know and most of the people working there were maybe like a, a 60 or older so actually you could do most of the your three hour shift in about half the time and then just kind of like hang about for the rest of it on your phone or whatever so that wasn't too bad but then looking back on it having such an interrupted sleep cycle because I'd, I'd kind of like sleep for a few hours get up go to work come back home sleep again i have such terrible memories of that year and a half that i basically can't remember a huge amount of it because I just and the information just wasn't encoded because I didn't sleep enough. And, and there were times at which I would hypothetically there were times where I, I would like I would start hallucinating from sleep deprivation at, at work. I'd pass out standing up and then like hallucinate a massive crowd around me as if I'd made embarrass myself and then like wake up properly. And no one was there. So that was like yeah, physically demanding and difficult in that sense. Not like um you know you know it was the it was the morning. No one was there. I didn't have to deal with any unruly or rude people, but. It was not a great job in other respects. I don't regret doing it. It let me be able to stay in Nottingham. It let me be able to afford to do my master's. It let me be able to afford to go to Edinburgh for a couple of years oh, in a row. So that was lovely. You know, it, could, it gave me the rest of the day to do other stuff in. But there were definitely, yeah, the concessions were made. And that was to do with sleep and, I guess, general memory health for that year and a half. Well, thank you for both sharing your jobs. Um, I mean, we'd all had to work, you know, I've done, I did a cleaning job once well, not the funnest time in life, but you know, we don't, we all have to do these things to like, you know, go to football matches and speak to people we don't, <laughs> don't know anything about or whatever. So, you know, it's, it's a, one of those things as an artist that we sadly have to do, but you know, it's worth it to, I suppose, fund what you love and all that. But before I sort of wrap up, I just wanted to say thank you to both of you for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was great to chat to you about like what you do. It's, it's clear you're both very passionate. So that's always a bonus as well. Well, before I ask the last question, I just, do you guys want to plug anything? Is there any shows coming up you'd like to, to plug? Uh, sure, yeah. All of the shows that we've done this year for Chronic Insanity are available at the moment until December 31st. So 
there are currently five performances if you go to our website or our social media that you can go and buy tickets for tickets yeah, and pay what you can that'll be, that'll be in the show notes as well so cool yeah yeah, yeah. Um, all of the tickets are pay what you can so if you can't afford yeah there are free tickets you can grab one and you don't have to do anything weird to prove just take a free ticket if you need one but we'd really love if people could buy a five eight or ten pound ticket because all that money goes directly back into funding other productions. Um, we don't have any rolling funding. Occasionally we get a bid through and we try and make as much work with that money as we possibly can, but that, those aren't on the horizon for these sorts of individual projects. So if people can like, yeah, if people, or even just donate afterwards, buy, get a free ticket, and then if you like the show, go back and buy a £5 one. Like That's completely fine as well. But um, all sorts of work. Interactive, watch on multiple screens if you have a phone and a laptop, choose your own adventure style stuff, internet treasure hunt style stuff with loads of different websites, and you can kind of uncover conspiracies. There's a like um, an immersive audio piece where a, a ghostly pair of hands chase you around your house that we did as part of a BBC New Creative Scheme. So there's all sorts available. We really do make each piece completely different from the next one. So have a look at what we've got coming up and what we've already done this year. And if you like any of it, give it a go. You know, none of them are super long. I don't think any last more than an hour. So if you've got a bit of time and you want to support a new theatre company and do something genuinely quite interesting and innovative, then yeah, hit us up. No, that, that's good. So I'll hope to, well, hopefully listeners, you, you've enjoyed this and you will go and, you'll go and check it out. Well, sort of my last question to you both, and you kind of, you gave some great advice in the, particularly in the question about failure, but to round off the podcast, we normally ask, I guess, just to sort of, ask what their advice would be to anyone who so wants to sort of get into the creative industry in general, but maybe specifically to sort of the type of roles they do. So do you both have any advice you would offer anyone in your position or to anyone who's maybe just starting out even further back? I've never had any specific art training. And I know that a lot of people, whether that's been for producing or whether that's been for directing or performing or design or whatever, it doesn't mean I wouldn't have necessarily benefited from it. But given that we're currently making work, which to be honest, if what you want to do is make theatre, you can go and make theatre. You don't necessarily need to, training will teach you what other people have done to succeed. But to be honest, that's all been from way before like even the internet existed. Like that's a different world and the world is changing all the time. And it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to learn what you need moving forwards. You might do, and there'll be some bits that are always going to be useful, but not all of it. So the only way we've ever gone further is by failing is by making work and it not being as good as it could have been and then making sure the next thing or the next time we either revive that or do a new piece moves forwards. So if people are kind of waiting to have, they have all the information so they can like make a good piece. I just don't think that's very likely to happen. I think what you need to do is make lots of work, make lots of theatre, make small scale stuff that only a couple of people see. We've had shows that only a single audience member have seen, but we've learned from them. And the next time that we've done them, or done similar shows we've taken on board that stuff from that process find people that also share these ideas and work with other people collaborate make loads of really really bad theater so eventually when someone's paying attention you're making the best theater you can make brilliant thank you very much for that uh, great advice what about you amber do you have any anything yeah, to add following on from joe don't wait for someone else to validate your work if you're proud of it if you believe in it go and do it. I think a lot of people are producing stuff right now and sort of sitting on it and thinking, oh, I'm not sure, or just go for it. What's what's the worst that can happen? And without sounding too profound, you are a whole person. You're not your job. So think about what else you can be doing, whether that is creative or, or non-creative. You know, go and chill out and have a gin and tonic or whatever it is you do to relax. It can be exhausting at times. And, you know, give, cut yourself some slack, uh, give yourself a break. You're doing good and you'll get there. Yes, ab- absolutely, Amber. No, this is very true. Something I would talk about as well, and it comes up on this question, but like you don't need to get yourself, even if as artists, I think we're all sometimes depend on our art to get self-worth sometimes when, which isn't obviously healthy. So sometimes it's good to separate that, like you can make bad art, but that doesn't mean you're a bad person is what I'd try and say. So do you know what I mean? Like, it, you, like everyone, even the people who are highly, highly successful in the industry have written something that was terrible or because you have to write something bad to write something good and, and et cetera. You, ha, you know, we're all capable of doing great things, but we're also all capable of doing things that maybe aren't as good. And that doesn't matter. It doesn't devalue your worth. So that's an absolute great bit of advice there as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're always going to write good stuff and bad stuff. I'd much rather I get all my bad stuff out of the way when no one's paying attention to me than become very successful and recognised for something and then the next thing be a complete and utter failure. Because then you're, you're stuck in that one-hit wonder 
kind of category, which is so obvious, infamous within the music industry. Yeah. It's when people get really big on their first thing and they don't know how to follow it up. But if you're yeah. making awful theatre for years and then you start making more good theatre and then people start paying attention to you, I think the chances of you continuing to make awful theatre once you've got the eyes of the world on you are much, much smaller. Because you'd learned, exactly. You know yeah. you're sort of learning what your strengths and weaknesses are. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But uh, guys, it's, this has been great. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. And I think the two things, having more than one guest, is I think it worked quite well. Yeah, and yeah I think it's gone good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a bit different, so I, I hope you guys as well. Well, thank you very much for your time. I hope people go and find Front of the Insane Theatre. It'll all be linked in the show notes. But uh, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, cheers. Well, that was my conversation with Chronic Insanity Fear. Thank you to Joe and Amber for speaking to us today. I really, really appreciate their time. I hope you enjoyed what they had to say. Be sure to go and check out some of what they've been up to. There's links to that in the show notes. And as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please remember to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. Also, remember to share us on social media. Uh, tell your friends and family to listen all that stuff goes a long long way in helping us to keep growing if you can also afford to donate a small amount of money to our patreon page every month that would be much much appreciated and it goes a long way all the money we make goes back into the upkeep of the podcast and there's a link to that in the show notes as well but anyway i'm off to watch scotland play in their first major tournament in my lifetime i'm very very excited so i imagine when the next episode comes out it could have went one of two ways but i'm very very excited so I'm away to watch the football. But wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a lovely week and we'll be back again next week with another episode of Just Get A Real Job. Just get a real job.